Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey there. Good morning, Crosspoint. Welcome for those of you who are in the house, and welcome for those of you who are online, and Uh, A special welcome for those of you who are new and just checking us out for the first time, or even for family members. I know it's Thanksgiving weekend, so family travels, even during COVID times, and so we might have some family members uh, visiting here, and so glad that you're uh, joining with us this morning. Hey, if you have a Bible handy, digital or paper, uh, I encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 9. That's going to be where we're going to be landing today. Uh, Also, if you're looking for sermon notes, uh, we have them online available during COVID. We're not doing anything paper. Uh, but online, if you go to thecrosspointchurch.ca slash notes, and uh, you can download a copy of them there, either a PDF or a Word doc format. Um, okay, oh, oh, also a reminder, we're at the end of our gathering, especially for those of you new, we do a Q&A, and uh, we give you a chance to fire off some questions, uh, whatever it is you want to ask. Uh, it could be based on the message, or it could be just something new. Number's up there on the screen, so you could even start... You know, get your text open and put that number in if you do have a question, and we will try and respond to some of those questions at the end of the gathering today. We do that for about five, ten minutes uh, at the end. Um, Okay, well, hey, we are in our teaching series on discipleship, and the series is called Formed, and it's about what it means to be formed into the image of Jesus, to become more like him, to value what he values, love what he loves, and to live as he lived. Uh, And so today, we're looking at the fifth mark of a disciple, which is mission. So let me give you a quick definition of what this mark is. It's simply this. Courageously share the gospel in word and in deed in every arena of life. Because here's the thing. is Jesus gave his followers two great mandates. One was called the Great Commission, and the other one was called the Great Commandment. His Great Commission was to go and make disciples of all nations. His Great Commandment was love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And both of these are really, really, really important for followers of Jesus. Uh, So we have been sent by God to bring good news to people, but we've also been sent by God to be good news to people. Both of these aspects of God's mission are super important. Uh, Hey, I wonder if any of you have ever watched the show Mythbusters. Uh, It came out in early 2000. I think it's actually still running today, but it's changed a lot. But uh, I remember that show. I I used to absolutely love this show uh, because it was a science-y kind of show on Discovery Channel, and sometimes I can get my geek on. I have an inner nerd that's there just waiting to come out. Um, but anyway, basically, the host has these two. The, the show has these two hosts uh, that use the scientific method to test the validity of all sorts of popular beliefs, internet rumors, myths, even news stories. And I spent an entire episode uh, looking into the validity of each of these. And at the end of the show, they determine if the myth is busted, if it's plausible, or if it is confirmed. Okay. Uh, well, this morning I want to do a bit of myth busting. And I want to start with three examples of popular myths that you all might be familiar with. So, here's the first one. Myth number one. Halloween candy is sometimes tampered with by nefarious 
people. I wonder how many of you have heard this myth before. In other words, every Halloween, you, you better check your kid's candy, right? Because you don't know. There could be a razor blade in their apple. Uh, their Tootsie Rolls could, be, Rolls could be doused with like cyanide or something. Uh, so basically, this, this rumor started in the 1960s. Check that out, like 60 years ago. And parents even today are still meticulously checking their kids' candy, and they're throwing out snacks that aren't prepackaged, they're checking out the fruit, looking for pins, etc. You know, the rumor started in 1960, but by 1985, 60% of the North American population actually believed that this was true. Uh, I can remember it from my childhood, uh, so uh, I would, you know, bring home my pillowcase full of candy, dump it out, my older brothers would steal the good stuff, and then what's left, my parents would kind of check it over and, and check for, you know, poison or, or, you know, nefarious sorts of operations. Anyway, the, the, the myth was actually debunked in 1985 by two sociologists. They're like, where did this myth, this idea come from? So they traced it back, and they found the rumor traced all the way back to two incidents that happened in 1958, okay? The first incident was when a five-year-old boy got into his uncle's heroin stash, and his uncle, trying to cover it up, took heroin and sprinkled it over the kid's candy. The second incident was a father who was trying to collect on an insurance claim doused his kid's candy with cyanide. Yes, so the best social science evidence reveals that taking candy from strangers is perfectly okay, but it is your family that you should be worried about. Myth number one. Myth number two. We use 10% of our brains, but would have special powers if we could just use the other 90%. Familiar? Sound familiar? Okay, uh, so the idea, you know, we could unlock our minds if we could just use like even 11%. We'd be like have telepathy, we'd be reading people's thoughts, or we'd have telekinesis, like, you know, Luke Skywalker causing things to float around, or like Yoda, right? Um, and, and this myth is so widespread that people actually don't even know where it originated from. Nobody has any idea. But it's given a whole rise to a market of books and blogs and TV shows, like movies like Lucy uh, with Scarlett Johansson or the TV series Limitless that's come out uh, not too long ago. Okay? Well, here's the thing. Is new technologies in brain mapping show that we actually use 100% of our brains. They can actually look and see 100% of your brain is being used all the time. There are no inactive parts in your brains, except perhaps when we believe this myth. Here's the third one. Women over 40 with a university degree are more likely to be killed by terrorists than get married. You're like, what? I've never heard that before. But here's the thing. Is, is this was actually believed for many years. Uh, this is a strange one, and it was actually started by a Newsweek cover in 1986. And it said that women over 40 had only a 2% chance of getting married. And this rumor was so widespread that it actually came up in a popular movie. I don't know if any of you remember the movie Sleepless in Seattle, but the two main characters actually debate about this rumor. Now, the, 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 the rumor was so badly discredited by scholars that Newsweek actually had to go so far as to uh, print a retraction 20 years later. Because here's the thing... Uh, Women over 40 have a much higher percent chance of getting married than 2.6%. And the chances of actually getting killed by a terrorist are 0.02%. Like, it's not going to happen type of percent, all right? So here's a question. Is, is where did these myths actually come from? Like, how did, how did they get started? How did they get spread, right? Well, all of these myths have one thing in common. 
First of all, they are interesting, like really interesting, like in a conspiracy theory sort of way. And everybody likes a good conspiracy. But second, they were started or cited by a supposedly credible news source. And because of this, people just kind of began to accept them. And when they began to accept them, they began to share them. And then eventually it got started to get repeated in movies and in books and articles until eventually it just became part of our popular folklore or what we would call common sense, right? It's just common sense. So now it's almost impossible for experts to actually even try and set the record straight on these. Well, as it turns out, Christians have their own popular myths. What? I know, right? Well, this morning, I want to talk about one of them. Uh, there's lots we could talk about, but here's one of them. Here it is. Most people are hostile to faith conversations. The idea, I think, behind this myth is this, is that most people in society are, generally speaking, opposed to Christianity, opposed to the church. Some would even go far as to say that the culture is overwhelmingly hostile to the church, to the point that, that the church is actually being persecuted or, or marginalized. And so if this is the state of affairs that we find ourselves in, so of course people don't want to have conversations about spiritual topics. Now the question is, is this myth true or is it false? And I'm sure this morning that you can guess the answer. But I want to hold on to the answer until later on in the message this morning. Because it is going to come up again. Hey, as disciples of Jesus, he invites each and every one of us to be participants in his redemptive mission in the world. His mission is to bring light and life and hope and truth to people. And I think the question before us this morning is, well, how do we do that? As disciples of Jesus, of course, we're supposed to follow him in every way. To live as Jesus did. To, to become like Jesus. And so this morning, I'm hoping that we can do something together. I'm hoping that we can take a moment and just observe the life of Jesus, who was, in fact, somebody on mission. And I hope this morning that we can learn what it means from him to live on mission in the world. And so to do this, I want us to walk through a story in the Gospels that's found in Matthew chapter 9. And I'm just going to read it this morning, and, and I encourage you to, to just follow along as we read it. Here's what it says. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. And when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And he called to him his 12 disciples, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. And this is the word of God. Can we pray together? Let's, let's pray together this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and it's active. And thank you that it's powerful to shape our lives and to transform us. Thank you, God, that you use us to encourage us, to lift us up, to challenge us. And we, we pray you do that this morning, God. We just... We just open our hearts a crack and we say, God, would you come in and would you just speak to us? Thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. And we just surrender ourselves now to you as your disciples. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let me take a quick drink here. All right, we can learn a lot from Jesus. So I, I just want to point out four key observations of what it means to be living on mission as a follower of Jesus. Here's the first one. Jesus went. Jesus went. Jesus knew that the Father had sent him on mission into the world. This, is, this was his why. This was his, his raison d'etre, his, his reason for being. Jesus came into the world to seek and to save those who were lost. And, and so because of this, he couldn't stay in his hometown of Nazareth. He didn't remain safe and secure, kind of in his bubble-wrapped Christian cul-de-sac. He didn't hunker down in the bunker, surrounded by people like himself. Jesus knew this. He knew that you cannot serve people. You cannot love people. You cannot share good news with people if you're locked in a fortress of your own making. And, and we, are, we are in polarized times uh, in this day and age. And, and I think the temptation for so many of us is to surround ourselves with people who are like us. People who agree with us, people who think like us, people who act like us, people who share the same basic algorithm on social media as us. But Jesus was a boundary breaker. Jesus tore down walls. He shattered algorithms. He leaped over fences. Walls of race and ethnicity, of socioeconomic division, of gender, of politics. Jesus had none of that. He, he broke through them. He was a boundary breaker. And, and here's the thing is he did it so well and he did it so often that the religious elite of his day had a real problem with Jesus because Jesus was spending all of this time with these, these disreputable people. So they canceled him and they, and they ghosted him and they, they spread all this misinformation about him. They actually called him a, glunter, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors. And when Jesus heard this, it's like he wore it like a badge of honor. Here's a question that often challenges me. Is, is how many of the people in my relational circles are a lot like me? How, how would you answer that question this morning? Now, I just want to point out what Jesus was doing as he went. Because what the Gospel of Matthew says, it says that he was teaching and he was healing. In other words, he was sharing the good news, but he was also being the good news. His, his ministry was not only in word, but his ministry was also in, in deed. And, and these two practices in ministry should go hand in hand. So the ministry of Jesus wasn't unbalanced to one side or the other. He, the, he knew that you can't share good news if you're not, in fact, being good news. The message has to match the messenger. Or as Joe Aldrich famously said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So Jesus went about teaching and healing. Well, what else did he do? Well, Jesus saw. See, as Jesus went, he saw the crowds. So, so that means Jesus was paying attention. He was observing. He was, he was listening. He was noticing. People were not invisible to Jesus. And actually, as you read through the, the Gospels, you pick this up about Jesus all the time. You realize that Jesus was paying attention. Jesus saw Zacchaeus. Hiding up in the tree when nobody else saw him. Jesus saw Nathaniel hanging out under the fig tree, even before he met him. You know, when Jesus went for dinner at the home of Simon the Pharisee, he, he gave Simon a real lesson in seeing people. Because what happened is a sinful woman showed up, she crashed the party, right? She wiped Jesus' feet with her tears and with her hair. And when Simon looked on it, and he saw it, he was like, oh, that's disgusting, right? I mean, how can Jesus let this broken and rejected sinful woman touch his feet? But Jesus looked Simon in the eyes and he asked him this question. You remember what he said? He said, Simon, 
do you see this woman? Jesus saw her, and then he forgave her, and then he restored her. Jesus saw people. He saw real people with real stories. He didn't just see statistics on a spreadsheet. He didn't just see like counts or shares on a social media account. Jesus saw people. And here's the thing, is that when you see people, you give them dignity. When you see people, you recognize that they exist. You acknowledge that they matter. Because here's the thing, we know this to be true. Because all people matter to God. They are made in his image. And because they are made in the image of God, reflecting the image of God, they have inherent worth. And so when you see that reflection, when you recognize it, you show them that they have dignity and that they have value. You know, I, I've got a good friend who just does this so well. We go out on, on bike rides together, and whenever we're biking together, he, he stops and says hello to everybody. I mean, he's driving by, and he says, hi, and how's your jog? And he's encouraging them and whatnot. You know, for me, I'm riding a bike. I'm like, I've got to get to my destination. Bing, 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 ring my bell, you know, you know zooming past people, right? No, no, he's, he's into everybody. He sees people, and I have learned so much from my friend. Do we see people? Do people matter to us what's interesting from the story though is 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 how jesus saw people and and i love this about the text because matthew kind of invites us into the heart and mind of jesus and we actually get to see the world through the eyes of jesus to to peek at it out through his lenses what was it that jesus saw it says that he saw a crowd of people who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. See, the thing about sheep is that sheep are, are pretty much defenseless animals. Sheep get easily lost. Sheep are easily attacked and killed by predators. Sheep need a shepherd. And a shepherd's job is to lead his sheep, and second of all, to protect his sheep. And the thing about the religious leaders of Jesus' day is they ultimately failed their people. In Jesus' day, he knew that there was a vacuum of leadership in Judah. They weren't leading and protecting their people. Instead, the religious, religious leaders of that day were devouring their people. And so when Jesus looks on the world, he sees a whole host of lost and confused people. He sees people who are disconnected from the shepherd, who wants to know them, who loves them deeply. And these people are facing attack from spiritual forces they might not even know about. They're confused and they're being misled by misinformation and false teachings. Uh, Jesus looks at them and he sees them as meandering, as broken, as insecure, as sad, as vulnerable, which would probably define most of us here in this room. And all Jesus wants to do is bring them back to himself so that he can watch over them and he can care for them and he can guide them. That's Jesus. So what else did Jesus do? Thirdly, Jesus had compassion. The text says that when Jesus saw the crowd in this way, it ultimately led to compassion. It, it broke his heart. Now, that word compassion in the original Greek is uh, splanknos, and this word is often used a lot to describe Jesus' heart. And it refers to this kind of this deep, kicked-in-the-gut kind of a feeling, that, that sinking pang that we sometimes get inside of us that goes right down to our bowels. And what this means is that Jesus breaks for the world because he sees the world as it truly is. 
You know, oftentimes the reason why we don't have compassion for the world and for other people is because we don't see the world as Jesus does. We're, we're wearing the wrong lenses or, or we're, we're lost in a fog of confusion. Do you know that how you see people will ultimately affect how you feel about people? And do you know that how you feel about people will ultimately affect how you treat people? Sometimes when I, when I tune into the cultural conversation, I, I just find it so easy to get con- you know, frustrated or sometimes even angry or sometimes adversarial. I get my guard up, right? But then I ask, ask myself this question. Whose lenses am I wearing today? I find that if I'm wearing the right lenses, if I'm wearing the lenses of Jesus, my heart gets broken. I don't get angry. Instead, I get sad. I don't push away. Instead, I, I lean in. And my encouragement to us as, as disciples of Jesus is that we will let our hearts be broken so that we truly see people as he sees them. And then we weep for people. And then we love people. And then we pray for people just as Jesus would. Well, here's the last observation about Jesus. Jesus sent. Jesus sent. So Jesus knew that compassion wasn't enough. But compassion's good. Compassion's okay. But it wasn't okay to just sit back and do nothing. It wasn't good enough to just post or like or share because Jesus wasn't a slacktivist. Jesus was an activist. And Jesus also knew that his own efforts weren't enough. Because here's the thing. Jesus had come into the world as a human being. He was fully God, but he was also fully human. That was his decision. That was his choice. And as a human being, he was bound by physical, geographical restrictions and limitations. So in order to accomplish his task of being on mission in the world, he needed help. He needed fellow workers to come alongside of him, people he could entrust with the mission. He needed to multiply himself in order to multiply his efforts. So what did he do? He said to his disciples, disciples, we need to pray. And we need to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send out laborers. Because here's the thing. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And so we have to ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. I'm, um, I'm from Saskatchewan, born and bred. Uh, yeah, go riders. Amen. Let's pray. Um, and I, uh, I married a farmer's daughter. So I didn't grow up on a farm, but I, I know enough about farming to know that when it's harvest time, Nothing else matters in the world more than getting the crop off the field. Farmers will be working sunup till sundown as long as they can to get the crop off the field. They'll eat their meals in the field. They'll eat their meals on tailgates for just a few minutes. But it is just nonstop because they only have a very short window to get that crop off before winter comes. And who knows? It could rain or something could happen that could slow down the harvest. So when it's go time, it's go time. The thing about harvest is there is an urgency to that mission. So the reason Jesus calls them to prayer and the reason he's asking the Father to send out workers is because of this urgency. And Jesus actually modeled this for his disciples. We don't read about it in this gospel, but we read about it in, in Luke's gospel. It says that Jesus, after he said this to the disciples, he went up on a mountainside to pray. He spent the entire night in prayer. And then he came down in the morning and he chose who his disciples were. So basically that takes place between Luke, uh, Matthew uh, chapter 9, verse 38 in your text, and chapter 10, verse 1. That incident takes place. So Jesus himself 
believed that we needed to pray that God would send out workers into the harvest field because ultimately those key leaders who he chose would help him with the harvest. Jesus is still looking for laborers today because the harvest is still plentiful. Crosspoint, let me just say this to us today. Let me remind you of what you already know. We, we are a sent people. We were made in the image of God. We are being renewed into the image of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And our God is a sending God. Sentness is a part of God's identity. God is both sent and God is sender. Think about it. The Father sent the Son into the world. The Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit are sending the church out on mission in the world. God is both sent and sender, and we are made in his image. So we were made for mission. It is woven into our identity. There is, there is no option B for, for God's strategy. His only option for mission in the world is the people of God following as followers of Jesus on mission in the world. This is why Jesus said these words to his disciples. John chapter 20, verse 21. Here's what he said. He said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, ascending God has sent the God, Jesus, even so I am sending you. On mission. So in the same way our sending God has sent Jesus on, on mission, now God is sending us out on mission in the world. It is our identity to be his hands and his feet and the voice of Jesus to the world. That's who we are. And this is why we remind you every single Sunday. And I hope it never gets old. And I hope when you hear it, it delights something in you and it awakens your soul. You are the people of God. You are called by God into his redemptive mission in the world. So be who you are. There is an urgency. The Lord of the harvest is calling workers to go. So let's, let's return to the myth this morning um, that we started with. Myth number four. Most people are hostile to faith conversations. So is this myth true? The answer to the question is no, it's not true. It's not true. Um, sure, there are some people, some people who might be hostile to faith conversations, but the best sociological evidence says most people are not hostile to faith conversations. In fact, 55% of the adult population in Canada would identify themselves on a census data as Christian. Okay, so uh, what drives this myth, though, are incomplete statistics and narratives that don't show the whole picture. Sure, they're great for selling books or getting people to come to your blog, or they're great for... Uh, getting more followers on whatever social media account you have. Um, and they've been repeated, though, enough times that we actually come to believe them. And if you spend any time on social media, what you're going to see is you're going to see the polarized one side and the polarized other side yelling at each other across the great divide. But the vast majority of people who are in the middle are like, I don't believe that guy, he's crazy, and I don't believe that guy, he's crazy. They're somewhere inside the middle, right? That's the majority of people who are in our world. So let me do a bit of unpacking, okay? I, I wonder if you've heard the phrase, the nuns are on the rise, Okay? Now, uh, when I use the word nuns, I want to be clear this morning that I'm not talking about women wearing habits. In other words, black and white outfits, Catholic nuns, okay? When I talk about nuns this morning, we're talking about people who have no religious preference or allegiance. So this is something that all the sociologists, religious sociologists in Canada are talking about, which are the nuns on the rise. So when people check off a census survey, and the census survey says, what is your religious preference? They will check off the box that says none. 
And what all the evidence demonstrates in our culture today is the fastest growing religious demographic in our culture are the religious nuns. More and more people today are checking off the nun box. And the reality is, it's not maybe because they departed, by faith, departed from their faith. The reality is they just are being honest, right? Because in the past, it was easy to just check off, well, my parents were, you know, Lutheran, so I guess I'm Lutheran, right? But religious nuns are just kind of coming to terms with what they actually believe and what they actually think. Thus, nuns are on the rise in our culture. Now, what some people falsely assume is that the religious nuns, oh, if you're a religious nun, then that means you're atheist or you're agnostic, or, or you're, you're anti-church. But as it turns out, if you ask more questions, you discover that the majority of them are not. The majority of them, like a, a large number of them would say, well, faith is irrelevant, or I'm indifferent to faith, or faith conversations. But many of them actually see themselves as spiritual, and many of them are actually open to spiritual conversations in our culture, many people. In other words, most people aren't hostile to faith. It's, it's a myth. In, in, in the, the, but, but I'll tell you what they are hostile to, okay? Here's what they are hostile to. They're hostile to arrogance. And, and they're hostile to people who will come across as if they have all the answers. Or hostile to somebody who isn't willing to listen and to learn from other people. The business leader, Ken Blanchard, he, he used to use this term called seagull management, okay? And a seagull manager, he would say, is, is that manager who comes in, uh, swoops in, makes a lot of noise, craps all over everybody, and then kind of flies away again. That's a seagull manager. Some of you are laughing because you've had seagull managers in the past. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. Uh, sometimes I think there are Christians who do the same thing. They, they, they fly in with truth bombs, they drop them all over everybody, they make a whole lot of mess and a lot of noise, and they fly away back to their fortress where it's nice, safe, and sound. That's, that's, I don't think that that's what Jesus intended for us as followers. So, so the best research says that people are open to spiritual conversations, but when we believe the myth, it can do two things. On the one, on the one hand, it can make us really defensive and get up our guard and it can polarize us. But on the other hand, what it does is when we believe the myth, it can lead to paralysis or apathy in mission. Um, I'm not sure if you've heard the story of Chicken Little. Have you heard the story of Chicken Little before? Maybe you're aware of it. Um, it's a very old fable about a chicken who thinks the sky is falling, right? And what happens is an acorn drops, lands on his head, and all of a sudden he, think, he has this belief, oh, the sky is falling, the sky is falling. He runs around telling everybody, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, right? And soon enough, his friends start believing it. Now, this is different than the kid's cartoon. My kids watched the cartoon, this, the Chicken Little, years ago. And that's way different than the story, because that has a happy ending. The Chicken Little story does not have a happy ending. He so misleads his friends and so scares his friends that they, they end up at the home, of, I think it's Roxy Foxy, and Roxy Foxy says, the sky is falling? And they go, yeah. And he says, oh, well, come on into my den. Comes into the, end, the den, and then he eats them. Okay, so not a happy ending. It's very different than the kid's version, okay? Well, Marion Webster defines a chicken little as one who warns of or predicts calamity, especially without justification. Here's the thing, is, is when you believe the sky is falling, you tend to spread your wild imaginations to everybody else so that they eventually become infected with your beliefs. And chicken littles can have this devastating effect on communities. They can create panic. They can promote harmful behavior. But most often, they can create a culture of paralyzing powerlessness and passivity. 
And I think oftentimes our response to this myth is, as believers in Christ, is we can just kind of move into a fortress mentality. We gather in our Christian cul-de-sacs, we hide in our spiritual bunkers, we bubble wrap ourselves with safe Christian people who believe what we believe, and we're just going to hold on, and we're going to just wait until Jesus comes back. And meanwhile, Jesus is saying to us, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Pray, dear God, send out workers into the harvest field because this is an urgent mission. I'll paraphrase what British philosopher J.S. Mill said. He said, bad men need to do nothing more to obtain their goals than to have good men look on and do nothing. And then almost 100 years later, the great Martin Luther King Jr. would write his famous letter from a Birmingham jail, and he would write this. He'd say, the ultimate tragedy of Birmingham was not the brutality of the bad people, but the silence of the good people. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And will we, the people of God, respond to this urgent call? Crossway, you know what my, my prayer is for us um, during this season of COVID? That we'll be able to focus less on what we can't do this season, but we'll instead use our imaginations to discover what we can do during this season. Because I, I think the enemy would love us to get all bent out of shape uh, and distracted by all the things we're not able to do so that we lose sight of our God-given mission and purpose. You know, this, is, this is why I was so stoked about the Beverly cleanup. I realized, you know, in the grand scheme of things, the Beverly cleanup that we participated in wasn't, wasn't huge, right? I mean, we had 85-ish cross-pointers go out and participate uh, in the community, picking up garbage and whatnot. And this was, you know, just after we got let loose from our cabins under COVID lockdown, right? So, I mean, it was kind of nice just to get outside. I realized that. Um, and it wasn't huge. Uh, but I love the fact that we did this. We took our eyes off what we, we can't do. And we turned our eyes towards what we can do. And there's a difference. It's a different posture. And so what I want us to ask and I want us to consider this morning is during the season that we find ourselves in, it is a different season, granted. But during this season that we find ourselves in, what is it that we can do? What can we do? How can you be good news to people? How can you bring good news to people? We are the people of God. We are sent by God into his redemptive mission in the world. And what the world needs today are saints who understand their calling and are willing to chase after it. People who will go just as Jesus went. People who will feel just as Jesus felt. People who will see just as Jesus saw. And people who will bring not only teaching, but will bring healing to the nations. Good news and good works to a world that is harassed and helpless and that so desperately needs it. And so that's my prayer for us at Crosspoint, is that we will be a people who will say, and we'll, we'll seek to find out, God, what can I do? What can I do? All right. Let's pray together. Can we pray? Let me pray for you and pray for myself as well, because I need it. God, that is our posture this morning. And, and we want to um, just step into our identity that you've given us as the sent people of God on mission in the world. God, would you inspire us? Would you reveal to us how we can do this and be on mission? in the places where we work, the places where we live, the relationship circles that we have. God, would you give us courageous to step outside our, our Christian bunkers 
into the world, to be with people, to see them, to love them, to serve them. And God, would you, would you um, go with us as you promised you would through your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, live in us and live through us to bring life and light to a world that needs it. We can't do this alone, Lord. We thank you. You will be with us always to the very end of the age as you promised your disciples. And we, we walk in that this morning and we believe it. So God, we surrender ourselves to you afresh this morning. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.